what I like to tell clients is if you've got people in the United States working on smart stuff, which is purposely vague, right? Then you probably are eligible for the credit. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up? Welcome to episode 54. Today's topic, how manufacturers can leverage the research and development tax credit. That's right. If you haven't heard of this, there is an R&D tax credit that applies to a lot of manufacturers. You might be surprised that your business probably fits in this category, but this episode is going to be a little different from some of the things we normally do on the show. A lot of times we'll listen to someone's career story and some of the lessons they've learned along the way. This episode is going to be particularly tactical. So if you're interested in learning how you can put more money in your pocket through this R&D tax credit, definitely listen to this one. I've brought in two experts from Cone Resnick, which is a tax firm that is very specialized in this area to take us through this process. So the three things you can expect from today's conversation. First, we're going to talk about who and what qualifies for this tax credit. This applies to manufacturers, big and small, whether you're a startup or whether you're an established business. Second, we're going to get into plenty of examples, plenty of stories that really paint the picture of how this works in practice and the type of things from software to hardware to full-on production lines to your employees themselves where all of that would fit into this tax credit then finally at the very end of the interview we have a nice little uh, beverage conversation to wrap things up after all it is manufacturing happy hour after all we have to talk about the drinks at some point so this episode is full of great info so if you want to learn more you can visit the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 54 and before we get into today's conversation, I did want to give a shout out to one of our reviewers of the podcast. That's right. If you like this show, you can leave a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. It's very easy. You can go there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. And we had Creative Girl 67 leave a review that says, This podcast cuts to the chase. Every manufacturer should listen to this show. Every episode is fuel for your success. Fast-paced, well-informed, smart, and always value-packed. Enjoy with a cocktail and take your business to the next level. Hey, thank you so much, Creative Girl 67 And again, if you want to get a shout-out on this show by leaving a rating and review, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. And we're going to get right into it today. Let's dive in to today's interview. All right. So today we have not one, but two guests here on Manufacturing Happy Hour. We are joined by Jesse Cahill and Scott Hamilton, who are both experts in research and development tax credit services at Cone Resnick. And they are helping put money back in the pockets of manufacturers through said R&D tax credit. So excited to have you both here today. And uh, to kick things off, Jesse, I think I'm going to ask you the first question. So right. manufacturing, yeah, yeah, <laughs> manufacturing happy hour fashion. 
Um, you know, you're based out in New York. So let's say we were doing this interview over a beverage, happy hour style, and someone came up and asked you, you know, what is R&D? Let's start at the very base. How would you answer that if we're just hanging out at a bar over a drink? Right. So really easy answer for that. It's just an incentive that the government offers to keep work in the U.S. So chances are, if you have any employees here in the U.S., if you're paying anybody to help you manufacture something here in the U.S., you're going to be entitled to money back that you aren't even aware of. Yeah, and it's it's interesting as as we were talking about this, you know, I was I just started hearing about the R&D tax credit recently and there's certainly applications in the manufacturing space and and I'm sure the leaders that are listening to this are interested to know like who qualifies for the tax mm-hmm. credit, what qualifies for the tax credit, but I'm going to keep us at the bar for one more question and this one's for Scott. I'm looking across the table at Scott now and you know, when we talked before this conversation, um, you'd given me a cool example of, you know, a a scenario in the software space with a video game. And I think stories always paint a picture of what something like this looks like. So we're still at the bar. Tell me the story of uh, of this scenario. Like how it, how how does this play out? What does this look like in practice? Sure. Thank you, Chris. So, for example, let's say that uh, we all have played a video game in our past, right? You know, PlayStation, mm-hmm. and Xbox, and on those video games, all of that, that gaming has to be developed. Uh, the development, believe it or not, of software video games is qualified for the research tax credit. And it's not just the basic people who you would think are the software developers at the company that, that are qualified for that. Um, I have been involved with companies uh, that are very well known in the Xbox and PlayStation space. And when it comes to crunch time and the final release is coming and everyone has to get on board and review it, they even bring in the receptionist. They bring in every single person to say, sit down, play our video game, look for bugs. You know, that's a very positive statement because it, it tells it tells the clients, it tells the manufacturers out there and the software developers, it's not just the people, what I like to call wearing white lab coats or the people that are software engineers. Mm-hmm. It's actually much bigger than that. It's everybody doing this kind of activity. It can be people supporting and it can be people supervising along with the people in the middle. And so uh, the software development world is 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 very ripe for taking the R&D tax credit. Yeah, yeah that was, you know, because that was the line that stuck out the most to me. You don't have to be wearing a white lab mm-hmm. coat. And I think that that touches on the personnel side. You know, I'm going to start with another kind of basic question here. And, and Jesse, maybe you can lead us yeah. off on this one. Um you know, uh, we've we've talked about how not enough people are really taking advantage of this today. Why aren't people taking advantage of it right now? Is it new? Is it just something people are unaware of? What's the story there? I think there are just a lot of misconceptions about it, right? Um, anytime you could get a lot of money back, people tend to get a little bit nervous. Maybe they don't know too much about it. They think it's a lot harder to do than it really is. But I think that all leads to people being a little bit gun shy and leaving a lot of dollars on the table. Yeah. So, and, and I'm curious about that because I think one thing that for someone that might not be taking advantage of this today, a manufacturer that has mm-hmm. the potential to do it, but just isn't, you know, what type of magnitude are we talking about? Are the dollars enough to get people excited, whether that's a percentage or whatever it might be, you know, uh, either Jesse or Scott, how do you feel about that one? 
Yeah, you guys should be very excited about it, right? Who likes paying taxes? I know I don't. It's the worst part of filing your return. And if we have a chance to give you a break on that, it's really good news all around. The really rough estimate, you guys could expect about 5% of your R&D spend to translate into a credit. So obviously, the more you spend, the bigger the credit. And the really good news there is that there are no caps on it or limitations. So every dollar you spend, you could expect at a minimum that 5% back. Um, sometimes for startups, it could even get as high as 10% back. So something to really be interested in. Yeah. Well, I, I would also add that um, going back to recent years to capture the R&D credits that you didn't get on those prior returns, like Jesse was saying, and then adding that to the current return that she just described, that can be a big uh, difference in an ROI in terms of what you really get back. Um, when you kind of talk to the magnitude, um, it, it can be you know, several hundred thousand dollars in tax credits when you add it all up. Um, and, and keep in mind, there's state credits that are, are neck and neck with a federal. So depending on the state and all that kind of thing, you could be getting a federal tax credit for the last three years or four years and state tax credits on top of that. And so when you start doing that kind of math, it really starts moving your needle. Um, and then when it comes to manufacturing, you know, it, it's kind of like, ask yourself this, if you make anything at all, have you improved that? Or are you just, just punching out the same widget day after day after day? Mm -hmm. No improvements at all, right? You're not improving your process or the quality. You're not changing up anything. Right. And most people say, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. No, we've got process engineers over there. We are mm -hmm. constantly seeking to improve the products and how we manufacture that. So it could be the same exact product, but how it's manufactured, which is a process. When you start talking about it like that in terms of almost devil's advocate, where it's mm -hmm. like, hey, client. You haven't you haven't improved anything at all right the clients just come unglued they're like oh my stars let me tell you about all the things we're doing and all this like whoa 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 do you take the tax credit for that well well no i don't take the tax credit because we don't have an r d department i'm like stop you don't need an r d department you just answered your own question and the client's mm -hmm. like what and so if they really you know jesse's so good at this she, she is able to open up the client's eyes to like wait I didn't realize that that kind of thing was qualified. I'm like, yeah, that that mm -hmm. actually is very qualified. And Chris, I know you like a story. So I actually have a pretty cool story around the process side of things where we had a client who manufactures tabletops. So that's something everybody knows, right? You, Everybody has a table in their house. And what was happening is that they had these knives that they were using to cut the different slabs and they were going dull and just becoming utterly useless after only, let's say, a week when really you should have gotten a year out of this stuff. So these people are going absolutely crazy, right? The first thing you do, you get on the phone with the people who make the knives. You start screaming at them. What is mm -hmm. wrong with this? What are you giving me? Uh, they're beating them up. They're trying to figure out all these different alloys, how to make the knives even stronger. And, you know, they come to some conclusion. And maybe, you know, you started out a week. Now they get three weeks out of the knives. Still nowhere close to where they needed to be. So the next thing, how can we play around with these knives? Can we angle it differently? Can we try to reposition it a little bit to cut it um, a little bit quicker? And, you know, a little bit of improvement here and there. They're adding about 
you know, maybe a hundred more products or yield that they started with, but still nowhere close. It turns out what happened is that the people who were creating the tabletops were inadvertently including cement in it. So you can imagine mm. that's why these knives are going bonkers and just dying after, you know, the first month when really you get a year. And a lot of frustration and heartache, of course, on everybody's side. You think this is just a big mess. But what they didn't realize was that all of that time and effort, all of those calls with the suppliers, all of that time on the production floor figuring out what the heck can we do to get this to work better, all went towards the credit. And that's something you never would have thought of, right? You don't think of R&D and people like making these little fixes and changes really counting towards it, but it did. And in that case, it was really significant dollars. Well, what I find interesting about that is you take a scenario that was ultimately a mistake and it costs yeah. money and there are errors in it, but you're at least able to salvage some of that mistake through this tax credit. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to ask you both a little bit, you know, just to kind of summarize the the what and the who a little bit, because what I'm hearing is, you know, it, it a, a lot of process improvements play into this. Mm -hmm. If a manufacturer is doing something to improve the way they're doing things today, if they're trying to optimize, if they're creating a new product, there's probably a lot of this that goes into it. So maybe, you know, let's let's start with the what. What let, let's maybe the top three to five activities that could qualify this. Scott, do you want to lead this one off? Sure. Um, for for manufacturers, um, your an, an example could be trial runs. That's a major activity. Um, where we would see that kind of, uh, so you've got people on the production line that are punching out the same widgets. And so somebody else comes down the stairs and says, hey, stop. I want you to tear everything down. I want you to run all of these prototypes or this batch test or trial runs, whatever the language. So that is one of the major opportunities there. Another opportunity in the manufacturing world could be automation. Um, you know, everyone's seeking to, you know, cut cost and, and things like that. And so, you know, robots or the like get involved. And so the discussion of automation. Um, another third example of manufacturing um, improvements could be uh, the type of equipment. Uh, just because you buy a 200 and some odd thousand dollar piece of capital equipment and you just, you know, I mean, how does this happen? Somebody just buys it installs it, plugs it in, it flips a switch, and it just magically works? Of course not. That's just not how life works. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of adjustment, modification. The machine doesn't do what we needed it to do. No machine does what we need it to do. So therefore, we have to pull it apart, figure it out. I mean, so there's that third item, which is customizing equipment or modifying equipment. So there's a lot of areas in the manufacturing area that um, it doesn't sound like you said, Chris, it doesn't say research and development. You know, that sounds mm -hmm. very um, pharmaceutical. That sounds very new product development. But what I like to tell clients is if you've got people in the United States working on smart stuff, which is purposely vague, right, then you probably are eligible for the credit. Another way of saying it, I said earlier, is if you're making anything, you're probably eligible for the credit. I mean, I'm, I'd like to be shown proof of how you're not eligible for the credit if you're a manufacturer. So I love that. I think what, you know, what I, the way you describe it, where it's nothing that requires an R&D department, I think <laughs> getting people over that hurdle 
will help them out. And and the people part is the next part of that question. And Jesse, I'd love you to, to help us on this one because we have manufacturers that run CNC shops. We have manufacturers that make widgets. We have original equipment manufacturers that are making big machines. We've got a breadth of manufacturers um, that listen to this show and manufacturing is kind of a broad area. So mm-hmm. Jesse, what type of companies qualify for this then? Maybe give us a rundown of those. Right. It's really a broad credit. So most companies are going to qualify for this. Like Scott said, it's actually harder to say what doesn't qualify for this. Anybody who's making a product or improving an existing product or process could qualify. So it's super broad. It reaches all different industries. You don't need an R&D department. You don't need, like Scott said, the people in the white lab coats running around saving the world. It's anybody doing work here in the U.S. So question is, you know, do I have an employee in the U.S. or am I hiring a contractor here in the U.S.? And that's usually a good indicator of, you know, a chance to qualify. Love that. And Scott, it looks like you've got something to add to this as well. It could be something is so minor. Let's say that um, it's not the product. okay? and let's say that you don't specifically wake up on Monday and say, I'm going to work on improving the process. But Everyone wants better yield. Everyone wants less scrap. And so even simple things where, hey, have you um, reduced your, your, your scrap or have you improved the uh, throughput or the speed of your machinery? Oh, yeah, we, we're constantly doing this now. Like even something simple as that can be considered qualified. OK, um, it, it's not it doesn't have to be so structured. It doesn't have mm-hmm. to have a, a half the time. Uh, clients don't even have names for these events or these these initiatives. And so we we ask them, give it a name. Well, we we called it the the dog food improvement project of 2021. I'm like, what what is what are you talking about? Yeah. Well, we tried to increase the the vat from 500 gallons to 850 gallons. But we were uncertain if we were going to be able to get the same quality of the food that we're always used to. We were uncertain if we were going to be able to get the same speed with a conveyor belt. And so we had to look at different optical eyes and things like that. It, it can be as simple as, um, as as the speed of a conveyor belt, That an improvement in that. And so it, it's... It's it's uh, it's actually a fun conversation. I just I you know Jesse and I we just love having these discussions where we ask like what is your competitive advantage? Mm-hmm. Oh well, people come to us because we're able to manufacture this. We're you know really quick. Oh oh oh. So you probably look all had all those answers right? Oh no no no. We had to we had to figure this out. We had to figure that out. That was a problem. This didn't work. Like whoa, hang on. You just answered your question again. And clients really like that because it just nobody wants to talk tax technical. Ta- the tax code. Uh, nobody yeah. wants. It. I don't want to. I know Cahill doesn't want to either. Like we hate that. No clients want to hear about the tax code. But what they do want to understand is how do you take the the activity and connect it to the dollars they're spending to translate into a tax savings uh, that Jesse and her team can do while you go and take care of your ten other things that you're working mm-hmm. on. Their client. Because clients don't mm-hmm. also have the time to invest in this either. They just trust that, you know, the likes of Jesse and her team know what they're doing. 
While I'm certainly someone that knows the value from a personal and business standpoint of outsourcing my taxes. So I think most people are already thinking from the mentality of, hey, there are people out there that understand this, specifically they understand the R&D tax credit better than I do. And and I think the fun thing is we've heard that it applies everything from knife and countertop manufacturing faux pas to dog food improvement. So there's there's quite the range on this. One thing I want to confirm is that if I heard you right, if I'm a manufacturer and I'm just learning about this today, I'm like, I've been missing out on this for years. There are ways to go back and recapture some of that. Is that correct? Yeah, you're exactly right. Awesome. Well, if that's the case, then, you know, as we get into the second half of this interview, I'd love to take us a little like through a little role play. So let's say I'm a man manufacturer. I make equipment or widgets. I'll, I'll let you both pick as to, to what scenario we go down. How do I even get started? I'm a manufacturer. I've just learned about this for the first time. Jesse, what's step one? Right. The step one is just picking up the phone and calling somebody who specializes in R&D like Scott and myself. What mm-hmm. we do is we just have a really easy conversation with you. So nothing you have to prepare for, nothing you have to be nervous about, just to learn about what activities and expenses you have to see if this is something that's worth your while. And like I said before, people have a lot of misconceptions. They get really worried that they need to have all of this information you know, ready. You have to be tracking down people's time down to the exact second of what they were doing. That's not mm-hmm. the case. If you have somebody who, let's just say, a head of a department or somebody who's kind of aware day in and day out of what people are doing, chances are they could help estimate or get a good reliable um, percentage for how much time people are spending on R&D. And that's all you really need, along with some basic um, documentation. And I love the way that Scott describes documentation. So I might ask him to jump in a little bit here. But documentation is a key part. And that's another thing people get really nervous about, right? Like, oh, my God, what do I need? So, Scott, uh, I know you have some fun little story there about the different documentation that you need and how it's not really as hard as people think. It's not. It's not. I remember, uh, you know, here's a story. Oh, my stars. What a story. So I was involved in an, in an audit and the, uh, the agent said, I, I need documentation. I, you know, this is way back when I need documentation. Oh, oh OK. Um, let me go grab a whole bunch of documents. We the client over assisted us, even, at, you know, we told him not to gave us around 11,000 pages of documents <laughs> and the agent's like, what the heck is that? I'm not reading all that. And you know, the client's like, but you asked for documents. The real goal here for the documents is essentially the, the smoking gun is an eight and a half by 11 with a date and a name on it. It's the nexus of the activity that, that's, that Sarah, the engineer is working on with this project over here where she's writing a couple of notes, calendar appointments, emails, um, you know, basic lab notes. Do we need 11,000 pages? No, no, we don't. It could be as simple as three or four examples scattered throughout the year. What the agents really want is something that they can understand narratively where they see Sarah's name with the date connected to that project where they can look and go, oh, I see that this is a testing document. Oh, look, here's an email talking about the challenges that they're working on. And here's one over here about the requirements that they were looking to achieve. Oh, and that that's the goal. That's what the agents want. Clients feel that they need to have, as Jesse said, some kind of special forms filled out. 
it it's really it's really kind of simple it's it's just a lot a lot easier than that and it's not so voluminous as the eleven thousand uh documents yeah, I like the way you describe that because I think that's where I mean when I when I think of taxes, the first thing I think of are documents. It's like, oh boy, I gotta scan all these things, send it to my tax guy and all that. I think what you just cleared up was things like emails, things like lab notes, like collect what you've got available. Um, you know, let's say let, let me ask this. If you know, this is kind of being reactive to it. I've just learned about it. I'm trying to capture it for years past. Let's say I'm someone that I'm hearing about this now. It's like, oh, well, I want to make sure I do this proactively for next year. Let's flip the role play a little bit. What are the things people can do to be more proactive about tracking these type of things? Jesse, can you lead us off again on this one? Yeah, of course. So really simple answer is that when you shoot out that email that, you know, talks about all the different process improvements, the different things that you were trying, just go ahead, stick it into a folder and save it <laughs> so that mm -hmm. we have it readily available for later. So that's really no extra time. You're just taking something you were already going to do, right? You already wrote that email. You were going to send it out regardless. And you're just keeping it somewhere where it's easy to keep track of. So nothing really special or unique, just kind of being a little bit more organized. And that's a really nice thing about the credits to begin with, because it's not something that you need to do any real extra work. It's all stuff you were going to do anyway. You were going to pay your employees any way to create this product. You were going to go ahead and document it or test it. And it's just a matter of filing those test results away at the end of the day. Yeah. Love it. Another example could be something like um, identify a, a point of contact in the company. So as Jesse's saying, hey, you're already going to save it. Give somebody a new title called the documentation custodian. Okay. Sounds mm. really special. And, and give them something on their calendar that every week or every quarter, every month, whatever, that they go around and send an email saying, okay, everybody, send me all your files so that that person's funneling the documents directly to the new folder on the server called savedocumentsforrndcredit.com, right? I mean, super simple stuff. And, and that way, the, the, the clients now can proactively build a better case for themselves. Um, and to be fair, you know, not a lot of clients are in the process of writing things down. So yeah, that's an example. So we've, we've covered some good ground today. We've talked about the magnitude. We've talked about who qualifies, what qualifies. And I think one of the biggest takeaways is, you know, you'd be surprised the people listening, you know, at the, at the amount of things that could fall into this. We've also talked about some misconceptions, some things that prevent people from getting started. It, you know, Scott, I've let Jesse lead the last one, so I'll, I'll let you kick us off on this one. You know, is there any ground we didn't cover today that's important to this conversation? If I'm a manufacturer and I'm trying to figure out how I can capitalize on this R&D tax credit? Yeah, so that, that's a good point. So we did talk about the types of activity, um, other things like tools, jigs, molds, dyes. Those things don't come up often, but those are big ticket items that can be considered eligible for the research credit. Um, we talked about, uh, the folks on the, uh, in the org chart, right. In the, in the company and, in, and all of that. Another thing to consider is that <clears throat> sometimes companies don't always have all of the people they need on staff and they have to reach out into town. If you will, they've got to hire a company or they need some assistance. We call that contract research. Uh, if, if Jesse is the CEO of a business and she's got, you know, 50 people behind her and they're all working furiously, but you know, maybe she needs some special testing analysis done that 
is not available at the company. So she needs to send that out. And that company is going to do that analysis uh, in, in help with the research that's going on or the development or anything like that. Now, those guys are going to turn around and send an invoice back. Well, that's another cost that we can capture besides the wages of the people and the supplies and the materials and the tool jigs is the contract research or maybe 1099 folks. There might be Sarah, who we've already identified as an employee. She's head of development, but maybe Susan is a 1099 contractor working closely with Sarah. So wait a minute, that person, Susan, as a 1099, yeah, we need to capture that cost too. And so... So one of the biggest things, you know, this is about when the clients say, hey, this is really exciting. I, I think I have this type of activity. I got all these costs. What do I do first? And so there's a lot that needs to get figured out and it can get a little overwhelming. And so, Jesse, you know, we, we have a, a, an approach, you know, we kind of break it up in two big parts, you know, the you know part one and two. So maybe you want to just unfold a little bit. How how do we figure this out? I mean we don't just start signing engagement letters and, you know, cause we have no idea. So what do we do when we got a client that's very excited? Yeah. So the first thing we do is we just have that initial conversation. And as Scott alluded to, we kind of break it out into phases. So we have something called a phase one. Phase one is nice because it's no cost, no obligation. It's just us kicking the tires with you, trying to figure out if there's a benefit here that's worth your while. And it's not a huge time sink, right? We're intending this to take between two to four weeks, really easy, maybe three hours of your time. And from those conversations and that really basic information gathering, we'll estimate what we think your credit should look like. And we'll also at that time give you a fee, which is a fixed fee, a fixed amount for what it would cost for us to compute the actual credit. So that way you have all the information there at your fingertips. At this point, you've done nothing, invested no money, just a little bit of your time to see if this is something worthwhile. And if it turns out that it is, we went back, you know, a couple of years and you're getting a really nice big benefit on your state returns and your federal returns. You want to pursue it. What we do is we move on to phase two. So phase two is a little bit more in depth. This is where we really focus on substantiating those credit numbers we came up with in the first phase. And we work with your team to go ahead and do that and give you something that at the end of the day, if you ever were to get audited, you have in your back pocket to kind of show everybody and say, no, no, this is why I claim this. No risk here. So that's the nice thing about the two different phases. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. It's that that it, that provides an overall trajectory of how we go from. I don't do R&D to yes, you do. And here's the dollars and here's where they're located. And so that we work with either their CPA or directly with them to put these credits on their corporate returns and then help train the clients going forward. You know, Chris, you asked about that, you know, how can I proactively, you know, do this better every year? So help help shine the light and say, hey, over here, we want to make sure that we continue to capture this information over here. This is less useful over here. Clients really like uh, to be uh, included, uh, brought along, um, you know, give them updates, you know, that kind of a thing so that they're not in the dark, right? I mean, this is not a mystery. The R&D credit is, it is complicated, but it really is not at the end of the day. It's it's pretty simple. It's, um, it's a really nice benefit for companies that at least should look into. Yeah. So I, I have a question because this is coming out in summer 2021, right when a lot of people have turned in their taxes for the year, they're like, oh, great. I don't have to think about this for a number of months. So I want to ask, when is the right time to start 
looking at this activity to start thinking about it, to really get your ducks in a row for enough time to, to make an impact. Jesse, can you kick us off on this? Yeah, of course. So really, you could do it anytime, but if you really wanted to be in that ideal world, I'd say you'd probably want to get started around four to six months before you wanted to file your return, because that way you give yourself a lot of breathing room. There's no stress. You're kind of nice set and coasting through it. That's not to say you can't do it, you know, within one month. You certainly can. It's just a lot less stressful if you give yourself a lot of time, you know, set yourself up for success. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of companies, uh, you know, they may have a 1231 year end, uh, which means that their tax returns are typically due, you know, in the springtime, if you will. Many companies do not file so-called on time. They usually extend their corporate returns, which means it punts that return to be filed in, in the fall you know, September, October. Um, and so, so really, and when you kind of take a big look at it, um, it's the summertime that you do this work so that you can get these numbers on the returns by the fall and, and then everybody's happy. Well, the nice thing about a podcast is it's timeless content. So I will make sure I'm sharing it uh, when people are thinking about taxes, when people aren't thinking about taxes. So I'll make sure this is getting in the ears of the manufacturing all-stars that listen to this at the right time. You know, at the start of the interview, I've got uh, a, a final question for each of you as we wrap things up. I was so excited to talk about tax credits. I never thought I'd say that in my life, but I was so excited to talk about tax credits and we dove right in. I didn't get to ask you both, where would we be having this conversation if we were at a particular bar? So, you know, let's let's start it. Let's start in New York. So, Jesse, if we were drinking in New York, is there a favorite bar brewery where we'd be having this conversation right now? And can you paint a little picture of it for us? So I'm a Brooklyn girl. I live in Brooklyn. I don't like venturing out too much into the city. It's just <laughs> very overpriced for the same stuff I could get here. Uh, but the really nice thing is that in Brooklyn, we've had a big fad of breweries coming in. And I'm a big beer drinker. That's one of my favorites. I really like the sours and things that are a lot different. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, we have one out here called Five Burrows. That's a local guy that I usually like going to. Just really chill, relaxed, nice atmosphere. And you see, they even got some free promotion out of me, aside from my money every weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, usually, usually there's a brewery or two or a bar or whatever that gets a shout out on this show. So that's uh, that's part of the fun here is as we get through the meteor topic. So five boroughs in New York is where we'd be drinking today. And uh, Scott, so you're out in California. It's a little earlier out there right now. Where would we be having a beverage if we were in the Golden State right now? You know, I, I uh, am not a fan of going to the bars as much as Jesse. Um, I am more of a tequila drinker. I drink fine tequila, um, and I'm, I'm always hunting for uh, unknown, uh, uh, you know, brands and farms and families in Mexico and, and trying out different sipping tequilas. And so uh, I, I usually venture to High Times, which is a very uh, unique liquor store uh, out here in SoCal. Um, and, and I just look for uh, very, you know, unknown tequilas. And, uh, and then and I, I bring my friends together. And, and what I often do is I'll put together all these little, you know, little, little glasses and I'll pour each one and I'll describe to the to the to the folks, you know, here is here are your silvers. Here are your here's your reposados. Here's your añejos. Here's your extra añejo. And then it's just like, think of the flavor and, you know, I, I help them with the sipping and, you know, don't shoot it. This isn't for college. This is 
like wine. It's just tequila. And so that's that's my beer, if you will. What's uh what's your opinion on Mezcal as well? I was just at a Mezcal bar in uh uh Austin, Texas this past yeah. weekend. Yeah, I um I do have a few of those bottles. I'm more of a añejo, extra añejo type tequila drinker. Um and so I I've got a couple of favorites. I mean, you've got uh, El Padrino, which is your kind of an easy, low cost go-to uh añejo that, you know, it's affordable, you know, things like that. And then you got some some of the bottles that are just ridiculous. They're like $200, $300. And sometimes those big pricey bottles, they they cannot hold their weight in the flavor that something like a $25 or $35 bottle can do. So um, El Padrino is a good example um, of, a, of a good tequila. Well, for the folks listening out there today, not only did you get to learn about the research and development tax credit, but this, I think, is our first ever tequila conversation we've had on the show. So if you want to learn more about these tequilas, if you want to learn about Five Burrows in Brooklyn, or if you want to learn about Cone Resnick and how you can work with them, make sure to check out manufacturinghappyhour.com to check out the show notes for this episode. And as we wrap up, Jesse, Scott, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hey, hey, thanks for listening. If you've made it to this point in the show and you're thinking to yourself, gosh, I really should take a look at this. I might be leaving money on the table. Well, to learn more about the tax credit and to connect with Scott and Jesse and Cone Resnick, Head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 54 to see all the show notes and links from this episode. I want to be very clear. You know, we gave some examples around big manufacturers, equipment builders, systems integrators, CNC shops. You know, startups also apply for this credit, even if you're not paying a ton in taxes right now. If you're a startup in the manufacturing space, still might be worth looking into this. So head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 54 to connect with the folks from Cone Resnick. Before we wrap up, I do want to say, if you are liking the content on this show, I'd encourage you to join our community, the Manufacturing Happy Hour LinkedIn community. It's over 400 leaders strong. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com community to take parts in discussions with experts like this on a regular basis, whether that's through the chat on LinkedIn, whether it's through the Zoom calls that we do on a regular basis manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. We will let you right into that community upon request. I also want to say thank you to our sponsor for today's episode, Trinet. Trinet provides small and medium-sized businesses with full-service HR solutions tailored by industry, and yes, that includes manufacturing. So if you're looking for help on benefits, risk and compliance, payroll, you name it, you should check out this group. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Trinet to learn more. And with that, that is all for this week. Thanks for sticking around. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.